Zechariah chapter number 12 tonight. Zechariah chapter 12, we'll see if uh, we'll get through this, all right? So listen closely. Uh, I probably will not get loud like usual. I've been accused of being loud, but that's okay, all right? And uh, But anyway, we'll listen tonight, and hopefully that this uh, chapter, we'll finish this chapter this evening, all right? We just got a few verses left uh, in it. Now, as we mentioned last week, the final burden of Zechariah begins here in chapter number 12. The word burden is very interesting in the fact that it tells us, it, 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 it's the, the idea is that it is the lifting up of the soul because of the depths within the soul, the desires that is within the soul, the desires within the heart is being revealed. So here's what's happening. Zechariah is delivering a message from the depths of his heart, the burden of his soul, what he wants to see happen with Israel. Not only does he want to see it happen, but God also will make it happen. All right? So the Lord has revealed to Zechariah what Zechariah deems to be a burden, a depths, something deep within him. And he wants to share it with everyone else. And in that process, God is saying, this is what is going to happen. So we're looking at something prophetical, right? Minor prophets, we're looking at things that are prophetical. And oftentimes, as we have seen already, that there are some things that have more immediate prophecy. But here in this section of Zechariah, because of the nature and the timing of it, it is all a reference to some things that are future. And we've noted that already in the first part of the chapter. All right. So uh, what we're going to do tonight, and um, just to help out, save a little bit of time, and we're just going to read beginning of verse number 9 through the remaining part of the chapter. All right. Can you trust me on the first part? All right. So last week we read the whole chapter. So when we go back and we'll read, you can reread the first part of the chapter at your leisure this evening when you get home, all right? It'll take you about, I don't know, a minute and a half, all right? And so you reread that first part of the chapter and then connect it together. Verse 9 is a connecting point because in the first part of the chapter, I'll just tell you what it's about again. He talks about there's a siege against Jerusalem. There's a group that wants to come and take Jerusalem. That's always been, they'll always want to come and take Jerusalem. And then we talked about the fact that the Lord is going to provide a supernatural victory. God in His ability, God in His uh, vast amount of abilities to be able to give to mankind or do whatever He wants to do, He is going to give Israel the supernatural ability to be victorious over any enemy that comes their way. Israel has had numerous enemies over the, the course of their history. And every one of them, even though the, a, a minor skirmish or minor, minor war or a battle of some sort have taken place, we know that Israel had, and they may have lost this particular battle or whatever, but then we know that ultimately every victory comes to Israel. God is the one that has given them the strength to do so. I want you to look here with me, if you would, at verse number 9. And I want you to see this. I wanted to point this out again. We left off here last time. But I wanted to point out verse 9 again. Because it is, to me, the exclamation point of 
everything that is going to uh, happen in the near future. I don't know the date. We don't, none of us know the date. We don't know the hour, but we know it's very, very close. That's why we keep saying it's close. It's coming. It is coming. What's coming? The Jesus is coming. All right. And so with that in mind, he gives us something here because it's going to, it's going to, begin to spiral into these nations all over the world and and we're going to because we've been talking about that all right and and it's gonna, all these other nations of the world are going to start coming in and approaching Israel and I'm talking major nations Russia China okay India is going to be included in that going to have some from the south you know, uh, all parts going to have even some more from the European area. They're going to come down. All of these nations are going to try, <coughs> excuse me, come in, and they're going to try to take over Israel. And it, they're, they're going to be uh, defeated. All right? So with all of that, watch what he says in verse 9. I love this verse. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Isn't that fantastic? Excuse me. I think it's wonderful that God is so emphatic about this. And he puts his, his stamp, his, his approval, his, his exclamation point. You go against Israel, I'm going to destroy you. It doesn't matter the, what, what nation it is or, or maybe what they have done in the past. Even, listen, listen to me here. Even if America decides to go against Israel, America will be destroyed. According to that verse, is that not what he says? He will do that. Well, let's read the rest of the chapter. I'm going to try to read the rest of the chapter. All right. Verse 10. He says, I will pour out or pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. As the mourning of Hadadrimon in the valley of Megiddo. And in the land shall mourn every family apart. The family of the house of David apart and their wives apart. The family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart. The family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart. The family of Shimei apart and their wives apart. All the families that remain. Every family apart and their wives apart. What does all of that mean? I want to show you tonight in this text of scripture. Zechariah has a concern for the nation of Israel. In the concluding days of her history, just before Jesus comes back, we find that he will rule, we know that he will rule and reign as the Messiah. The Antichrist is going to rise to power, but he's going to be defeated. Hallelujah for that. The nations of the earth are going to attempt to take over this little tiny spot of landmass that's, uh, that's, uh, uh, that, that's been the... The, the, the place where everybody in the world wants to have. They're not going to be able to accomplish that. So what is it about these things? What's going to happen here at the end? And we know that all those nations, as verse 9 says, that seek 
that to destroy Israel, they're going to be sought to destroy. They're going to, those that try to overcome Israel, those that try to overcome Jerusalem, they're the ones that's going to be actually destroyed. So what's going to happen in that process? What will happen? There's, there's a, a, a sequence of events that will take place. And, and here's what happens. Israel is going to be converted. Now pay attention to my conversion. I'm not talking about a conversion of salvation like we're thinking about conversion, all right? I'm talking about they're going to be converted in a way in which they will know, recognize, and remember who Jesus is, who the Messiah is. It's going to dawn on them, you know what? We messed up years ago. But God is going to be spectacular in what he does, okay? So tonight what I want to talk about is the conversion of Israel. Now, I'm going to explain what this conversion means in two ways, all right? Two things. In verse 10 and verse number 11, they have a smitten heart. God smites their heart to the point that they see who it is. They see Jesus for who he is. They see the fact that that Jesus has has, uh, been uh, taken and uh, uh, he has been taken and crucified. There, there's something that's going to happen with them as, as they're smitten, their hearts are being smitten. Now, while God has shown his power and his strength through judgment against the nations of Israel, and he does that in a physical manner, as we have seen already from verse 1 down to verse number 8, verse 9, that exclamation point. So God does all of that in a physical realm, okay, a physical nature uh, in the, the fact that They come in, they want to take over Israel, but they can't because God's going to give them victory, all right? A supernatural victory. One thing remains for God to do. Yes, they've got the physical part taken care of. The land is going to be theirs, and God's going to give them that victory. They still are not where they are supposed to be spiritually, all right? So that's what God has to do next. And if we trace the history of Israel, we learn that. So what happens is... Israel, in their disobedience to God, they become oppressed. In that oppression and in their disobedience, God judges them. God causes or creates something terrible to happen so that they recognize where they need to be. So they go through a physical kind of judgment, okay? It's like a physical spanking, all right, because they've been disobedient. At the same time, there is a spiritual spanking that happens with them. And God has to show them that they need help spiritually because of their disobedience to the Lord. So, oftentimes what would happen is that they would get involved in idolatry, which is a a physical act, but it's also a spiritual act on their part of where they they have undermined the power of God. So what happens is God has to prove to them, judge them, and get them back where they need to be spiritually. All right, does everybody understand what I mean by that? I hope you understand what I mean by that. Because I honestly think that we do the same thing. All of us, we as, uh, as Americans and we as, as Christians today, we, we go through the same kind of process. We'll, we'll go a while, man, everything's great and glorious and we're shouting the victory and like, whoa, this is fantastic and all that. And then we get a little relaxed, Satan comes along, he tempts us, and then we kind of go, you know, in another direction. And, and, and we, we disobey God and in that disobedience, God has to come along and give us a spanking, a whooping. 
Sometimes he'll do a, a spiritual whooping. Sometimes a physical whooping. Sometimes God will create some things. And it was like, oh no, it has dawned on me that I have done wrong and I need to get myself straightened out. So God will do things to us. Now I'm not saying every physical problem that we have is a result of a disobedient act that we have committed uh, and, and God's judgment. I'm just saying this is a, a process that we see happen in Israel. It's over and again with them. But the main thing that God wants to do with them is to get them right spiritually. Just like God wants us to be right spiritually. You know, I was speaking with a young man not too long ago. And he was talking to me about a, a problem that he was having. And he says, I just don't feel God. I just can't see God. And I told him, I said, well, the, we've got to determine what the root of the problem is. And I said, the root of the problem is that you are not right spiritually with God. When you get right spiritually with God, then maybe some of these other things will, will begin to take effect. Two weeks later, I had another conversation. And it was amazing the difference in that conversation. And then I asked the question, I said, what have you been doing? He said, well, I've been reading my Bible. He hadn't been doing that before. Been reading his Bible. Been studying his Bible, and getting things back where he needed to be spiritually in his own life. Okay, so God has to do that for, for us, you know, on a national scale, all right? He has to do that to us on a, on a more personal, individual level. That's what he's doing with Israel here. He says, I've got to get them back. So this, remember, this is the depths of Zechariah's soul, his heart. He's pouring out. He says, yes, I understand the physical part. God's going to give them supernatural victory. But listen, they're not quite there yet. So I've got to make sure that they get right spiritually. The best thing that you and I could ever do is to make sure that we stay right with God spiritually to prevent the physical. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. You know, Israel thinks that they're there. He's got, God has some spiritual purposes. Becomes, they, they become the focal point now. And they, they, they've got to be accomplished. And so here's what God does. He said, like never before in their history have they ever seen the grace of God and the, the might of his mercy in this text. Watch this now. Look at verse number 10. He says in verse 10, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. Never before in the history of Israel will the grace of God and the mercy of God be put upon Israel like it has or like it will in the near future. When that day is, I don't know. But here's, here's what's going to happen. The conviction will be so strong and be so evident that they will look no longer because they will see that they need to be praying supplication. That's the word. They will be supplicating to our God for forgiveness for what they have done. What is it that they have done for all the wrongs that they have done on a national scale? There's only, there's only one in whom they need to look at. Only one person they need to look at. And that's the Messiah. That's Jesus. Watch. Watch what he says. Let's go back again. Verse 10. He says, And I will pour up on the house of David... And upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. And watch. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Hmm. 
I was reading a little bit about this uh, earlier today. And you know there are some who want to change that word pierced to insulted. While it is true that the Jewish people, the Israel, Israel they, they insulted the Lord. I, I get it. But that is not the concept here. There is, a, there is a huge difference between an insult and a piercing. Does everybody understand? Big difference. The look here that they are given. Watch what he says again. He says, they shall look upon me in whom they have pierced. He's, that, that look here is a deep regard. Their attention is fixed upon him. And while, yes, while they, they have maybe uh, insulted him in, in a way, was it not the Jewish people that yelled, crucify him? Was it not the Jewish people in that day, the Pharisees and the scribes, they started it. They started the day. The lawyers, the the spiritual leaders of that day, were they not the ones that said, crucify him, his blood be on us and on our children? And you know what? It's been on them this entire time. Throughout their entire history, the blood of Jesus has been upon them. It's impossible It is impossible to see the grief that the Lord experienced through an insult. But it is very possible to see the agony that he experienced through the piercing. We can go back and we can talk and we can describe the agony that he went through. Yes, they physically pierced him. They physically pierced his body. We see that through the hands and through the feet and through the side, through the thorn, crown of thorns upon his head. We see the physical piercing there. But there was an emotional piercing too. I can't believe that they rejected God the Father. I can't believe they rejected after all that I'd done for them. And yet they reject. I send my son. He preached the acceptable year of the Lord. He healed those sick. He, he fed the hungry. He did all of these things for them. And yet there was an emotional piercing of his heart. God's heart was broken when they rejected his son. This actually has the idea of being most intense. It's the most intense kind of sorrow. As if they had an only child and that only child died. Wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus God's only son? Did not his only son die? Now, many in that day, or, or even the firstborn... When it's the firstborn within the family. And I would dare say that it doesn't matter if it was the firstborn or the lastborn. Any child that would be taken in death would be a time of mourning for the parents. Some of you may have experienced that. But watch what he says in the text. They shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. They shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now watch what he says here in verse 11. In that day, we've seen that repeated throughout this chapter. 
in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. So it's not just a single individual family, but it is all inclusive of all of Israel, all of Jerusalem. Everybody's involved in this mourning process because they all will see whom they have pierced. The one whom they have physically and emotionally and spiritually pierced through with their disobedience and their disregard for anything spiritual or godly. This morning, it's a deep sorrow. It's, it's, the, the word mourning in verse number 11 has to do with the fact that a person is wailing because of their sorrow. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard someone wail because their heart is broken? How many ever heard that before? I've heard that before. That is sometimes one of the most deafening things you hear. You, it's an uncontrollable grief that a person experiences and goes through when they're with and he says that's what all of Jerusalem is going to do because they will recognize who it is that they pierced and now they're going to experience this wailing their hearts are smitten in other words verse of verse 11 again in that day there shall be a great morning in Jerusalem as the morning of Hadadrimon in the valley of Megiddo. Now, we are very familiar with that, that valley of Megiddo, right? Okay, it's spelled a little bit different here, but it's the same valley of Megiddo. Now, hey, 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 Dadrimon is a, uh, it's, it's, this, it's two cities, two cities of Syria that are combined to this one general area. It's near the Esdraelon Valley. Which, by the way, is the same valley where many of historical wars and events in Israel's history have taken place. Where they have won battles, they have lost battles. But it is also the place of a final battle. Think about this for a moment. How many times has Israel mourned the death of their own in that valley? How many times has Israel shouted victory because of battles they have won in that valley and yet the enemy has mourned in that valley? So here's the point. The point is there is much, whether it's Israel's victories or Israel's defeats, they, there's been mourning in that valley, in that region, that plain area where those two places come together, where that valley of Megiddo is. And here's the bottom line. There is coming a day in which all armies of the world will meet at that one valley and all families of the earth. All nations of the earth will mourn like never before because of their defeat by the supernatural power of an almighty God. That's interesting. I want you to see this lastly within the text. Not only in verse 10 and 11 is there the smitten hearts. And we're talking about the conversion of Israel. The conversion, again, let me, let me go back up for a second. When we talk about this conversion, we're not talking about salvation by grace through faith like we know it. We're talking about them converting to understand what they rejected and who they rejected by the piercing that is mentioned here. They will look on the one whom they pierced. That conversion is, oh, oh, now I see. My eyes have been opened because my heart has been smitten. 
that's the kind of conversion there. They experience that grace of God because God is going to be gracious to them again. He's not talking necessarily about the same kind of faith or salvation that we are referring to or for, for you and I. All right? I want everybody to understand that part. Now watch this. The last thing, the last couple of verses. He says this. My cough drop is about out, so I've got to quit. I've got, I've got five minutes left in me in the cough drop. Verse 12, 13, and 14, what is this? The sorrowful mourning. Now, I know we've seen mourning in verse 11, but watch what happens there in verse 12. He elaborates on this very this same issue. Their hearts are smitten, but the mourning, the sorrowful mourning continues. Verse, uh, uh, verse 12, and the land shall mourn. Whoa, the land? Yeah. Every family apart. The family of the house of David apart, their wives apart. The family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart. What is, what is he doing here? The manner of mourning is detailed here in the remaining verses of the chapter to a universal mourning that is going to take place that is individually and nationally. The, the nation is going to divide, and the nation we know, every nation is divided into families or groups, and those individuals are weeping bitterly over the rejection of Jesus, who is the Messiah. They're going to come to an understanding and come to agree, uh, uh, an agreement here of understanding that they have, they have received these judgments and the, the problems in their life because of their disobedience. And now they're going to receive the grace of God and the mercy of God as he is going to bring them together and he will give them the ultimate victory over all the nations of the earth. But all those areas will have some mourning involved with them. And it's very, very sorrowful. Watch what he says here. He uses the house of David, the family of the house of David apart and their wives apart. So he's inclusive here. And then he says the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart. So what, what, what does he mean here? David was the king. And remember that Jesus, when Jesus comes back, he's going to sit on the throne of his father. Say it, David. Y'all awake? David. I know my voice is not as normal, but you know, you're listening, right? Okay, so Jesus is going to back, going to sit on the throne of his father. Thank you. I got you. All right. So, so he's, he's going to include here the royal lineage of the nation of Israel. But then he uses the word or uses the man Nathan. Now, there's two Nathans that could be referred to. One of them is the Nathan the prophet. Remember him? He said, David, you're the man. You are the man that has defrauded Okay, and when, when David sinned with Bathsheba and killed uh, Uriah. Okay. So, so it could be that Nathan, or it could be David's youngest son, Nathan. Irregardless, and it's, we really can't determine. There's no evidence to determine which one it is. But we can say, irregardless, whichever one that it is, it is inclusive, uh, whichever one is intended, whether it is the prophetic group, whether it is the royal family group, uh, as a, it, it, either one of them, it catches the highest and the lowest. But then he says this, and their wives apart. What does that mean? In that culture, in that day, when they would go to worship, the husbands and the wives could not sit together. Would y'all like that? Don't answer that question. 
All right. You know, we, we like it when the husbands and wives sit together, right? All right, but in that day, in that culture, they couldn't sit together. Well, why is that? Maybe distraction. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's not paying attention to the preacher and he's, you know, looking at her eyes. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe they're holding hands. Uh, well, I've seen some of you hold hands before. I've seen some of you throw that arm around. Sometimes that's the only time y'all get close. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That was bad, wasn't it? Yeah, help us, Lord. I'm in trouble now. I can't talk now. That's, that's probably a good thing. I need to shut up. All right. Now, whatever the reasoning for that was, it was, it was a cultural thing in that day. That they were not supposed to be. So when the husbands and the wives are apart and they're worshiping and in the other things, that was the purpose of that. But watch what else he does here. Not only he includes the lineage royalty with David and Nathan, whether it's the prophet there or, or whether it's his son, okay? He, he says this in verse number 13. The family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart. The family of, of Shimei apart and their wives apart. So we got the wives apart thing in the same in verse number 13 as well. But who's Levi? Levi, if you'll remember, he was the leader of the tribe, the priestly tribe. All right? And there was that religious side. So we got David who's part of the political side and we've got Nathan who would be part of the prophetical side. We got Levi who's part of the priestly side. We've got Shimei. Who in the world is he? He was one of the uh, the son or the descendant of Gershon who was a part of the family of Levi. So we, we have all inclusive here. It represents all the classes of the priestly office. You've got to remember something here. When, when the, the, the tabernacle structure in the Old Testament, when they would take and move it from one place to the other, all parts, of the, only the tribe of Levi was allowed to touch the curtains, the posts, the, 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 uh, the pegs, the, the, the curtains, uh, everything about it. And they were the only ones that would be able to move the tabernacle from one place to that. Nobody else, no other tribe could do that. And each one had a specific area. Some took care of the furniture inside. Some took care of the curtains on top. Some took care of the outward structure or part of it. And so they each had their responsibilities. So all he's saying here, if you're a part of the tribe of Levi, I want Levi who is the head, the first in the lineage of the high, of high priest and right on down the line to the ones that carried the instruments and the part of the tabernacle. All of them are involved in what? Morning. All, they all have a sorrowful heart. Watch what he says in verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 14. All the families that remain, every family apart and their wives apart. What are they doing? The first part of verse 12 says, And the land shall mourn. What are they mourning? Because they missed it. They missed it. They had the opportunity years before, to accept Jesus as the Messiah, and they missed it. They're going to look at the one that they pierced, physically and emotionally. Spiritually, it was, it was very destructive for them. 
They're going to see all that and all the things that they could have had or it could have happened to them, they missed it for all of these years. How long ago has that been? About 2,000 years. They missed about 2,000 years of blessings. Yeah. Put those numbers together. How many of the people of Israel have died without Jesus? They could have had blessing after blessing after blessing if they'd accepted. They're going to realize all of that at this point. And they're going to mourn. He's including all the land, all the families of all 12 tribes of the children of Israel. From royalty. And he's, he's specifically mentioning here those in leadership roles. Whether it was the political leader of David... The spiritual leader, Nathan, or if it was his son, is still part of royalty. Levi, the priestly role. Every part, every family are going to experience all that. What is the intent for all of this? Why, why is Zechariah even saying this? What he's saying whenever, again, another, another aspect, I forgot to mention this. When he says the wives apart, you know, in each one of those, David, the wives apart, and the, the, the sons of of Levi and the wives apart, Shimei the wives apart, and all that. Sometimes whenever we get to that place in our life, we need to be alone with God to determine our own destiny. In other words, I can't make certain decisions for my family. They have to decide. I can't save my boys or my grandchildren. But God can. So it's, when it's the family unit itself, but then when there's that apart part, apart part, that was funny, that apart or that division, there is that aspect of it where we need to be alone with God to make that determination. So the whole focal point and the intent even of these verses is very simple. To look away from everything else. And look only to the God of heaven. That's what he's trying to get them to see. Because they're going to see only one whom they pierced. Only one. And that's him. So take those things apart. Put them in that place where they need to be. Look away from everything else and look only to God. Oh, you know what? That's one thing that needs to happen today in our world. We're looking at everything else going on and we're failing to look and see God. And that's happening a lot in these days. Well, that concludes chapter 12 of Zechariah. I apologize for the crazy voice that's going on. And I'm starting to squeak like a little girl, so I'm going to quit. Let's pray, all right? Father, we love you so much. Thank you for your blessings and how good you are to us. Thank you for Zechariah and his, uh, his, uh, what you've revealed to him. And, and as it reveals and relates to us, we pray, Lord, tonight that you would use the thoughts and the lesson. Lord, may it be helpful. Encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.